morning, everybody. Welcome to the Vineyard. My name is Adam. I'm the, the pastor here at the Vineyard. Really glad to have you guys with us. Everybody happy? Yeah, good. Probably not going to do any high kicks this morning. <clears throat> I have high kicks in my heart, but my body won't let me. I, 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 ran, I ran a four-mile race yesterday for the first time in my life, and I'm sore in areas that I didn't even know I had. Particularly this little area right, the skin above my ribs, like I can't even barely touch it. Some of you runner guys, I'm really pathetic. But, yeah. The really sad part was that uh, I ran with my 10-year-old son. He and I ran together. We did all right. But my 12-year-old son, he smoked us. He smoked us. He, he, he beat Seth and I, River beat Seth and I by 10 minutes. Wasn't even it wasn't even close. We never even saw him. He was just gone. So, how long does it take for a father to become insignificant to his sons? Uh, about twelve years. That's that's how long it takes. And um, it, I, I don't know if it's going to get any better either. So I don't know why I'm telling you that story. I just am. <laughs> All right. Hey, I'm going to uh, step out of our series on visionary leadership this morning just for one week. Um, got something in my heart that I just couldn't get rid of. And I'm going to use this as a Sunday just to let off some steam, okay? By the way, I'm not mad. <laughs> that sounds like I'm really mad. Like, brace yourselves, the pastor's going to punch you. Um, no, not at all. Just had something in my heart for the last couple of weeks, and the Lord gave me a scripture, and I just, I just couldn't get away from it this week as I was praying, so I, I scrapped my visionary leadership message, and I'll give it to you next week. But just want to talk something... Um, a little bit different this morning. And honestly, if I'm, if I'm being truthful with you, I, I want to talk really pastorally to you this morning. Um, not that I don't do that every week, um, but I, I really have something here that I think is sort of just, it needs to be heard, especially here at the Vineyard. Um, and what I want to talk to you this morning is, I want to talk about keeping our hearts alive with respect to gathered worship on Sunday mornings. This is something I haven't been able to shake. It's really been with me for more than two weeks. It's been with me for the better part of a year, really. And it's been heavy on, on my heart for the last couple of weeks. And I just want to talk about keeping our, our heart and our spirit alive when it comes to this thing that we're doing right now, like this, this getting together, especially for worship. Now, the truth is, everything that we do here on Sunday morning is worship. So, you know, singing with the band, that's worship, and... Receiving communion, when we do that together, that's worship. And when we give our tithes and offerings, that's worship. And when we listen and we respond to the word of God, that's, that's worship. It's all worship. But today, I really feel compelled to talk about giving thanks with our whole heart and the company of the upright in the congregation. All right? I want to put up Psalm 111 this morning. This is the scripture the Lord gave me, and I, I haven't been able to shake it. And I just want to read to you, like, the first... Three verses, okay? That's really what we're going to look at this morning. But if you have a chance this week, just settle in the whole thing. This is what it says. It says, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart and the company of the upright in the congregation. This thing that we do together, it's, it's not benign. Like, I know the repetitive nature of church can sometimes make it feel benign. We can take it for granted, but this is not benign. There is something about coming together with the upright to declare our love for the Lord with our whole heart in the midst of the congregation that is profoundly important. 
Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Studied by all. How many in the room have ever studied the works of the Lord? One of the ways that we express delight to the Lord is not just to declare worship, but actually to begin to study the things that he's done. Look into them. And then verse 3. Full of splendor and majesty is his works, and his righteousness endures forever. So I want to talk about, I want to really talk about keeping our hearts alive when it comes to gathered worship. Uh, Here at the Vineyard, we've always prized worship with respect to using music as a means to declare the goodness of God and to tell God just how wonderful he is. That's always been a really big deal. Uh, Not just at this church, but that's always been a really big deal in the church, like the Big C Church in history. Uh, One of the really unique things about Christianity is that we're a singing people. Not that other cultures and other religions don't sing, but one of the really unique things about uh, Christians is that they have historically always sung, not just about God, but to God. It's, it's remarkable. And we've, we've prized that here at the Vineyard. Uh, not just because uh, maybe some people could get famous and we could have a record deal. The truth is no one here is famous and no one here has a record deal. Uh, and even if you do, you're probably not going to make any money at it. You better get a day job. But we prize it because there's something about when we get together for 30 or 40 minutes to sing to God that really reorients our hearts. And this isn't small stuff either. Um, here at the Vineyard, we, we, we've prized this stuff. Uh, we don't consider uh, the music section of our worship gathering, we don't consider it a warm-up to the preaching. Uh, it isn't a mere sing-along to cheer us up and numb us to the realities of life. Uh, and it also isn't an escape. I know in some church cultures, worship can be viewed as an escape. You know what I need to do? I just need to get away from it all. Uh, I like to worship because it, it, it allows me to get away from the world. Uh, no, the truth is worship is not an escape. Worship is actually entering into a reality as it really is. That's what worship is. This is one of the reasons it's so important. It's not an escape from reality. It's an escape to reality. Furthermore, worship is not a spectator sport where the most talented get to entertain us with the remarkable gifts. Worship in its essence, what it is, it's participatory. It's participatory with the band and also with one another. There's this thing that happens when we all sing together. We're not just singing with the band, but we're singing with one another. And then we're also singing with God. And we're not just singing like to him, but Zephaniah says that he's already singing over us. And so we even sang it this morning in the fourth song. You sing over us and we respond back to you. There's this thing that's going on. And some of us maybe are aware of it sometimes when we get together for gathered worship. And, or sometimes we're not aware of it. But the truth is every single time the church gets together as the upright in the congregation and begins to sing to God, we are adding merely the second part. It's never the first part. It's participatory. And, it, and our part really matters. Now, I know that some people, probably not people here, but some people bristle at the idea of worshiping God. And we begin to think thoughts like this. Well, what kind of God requires worship? Well, a couple things about that. Uh, Number one, everybody in the room is worshiping something. Everybody here is worshiping something. Uh, It might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. That's what Dylan said. And it's really true. Everybody here is already worshiping something. It might be a car, a bigger house, a job, promotion, a woman, a man. But everybody here is worshiping something. And then number two, uh, worship isn't required because God needs it. This is something we really need to think about for a minute. 
Worship isn't required because God needs it. Uh, he's not insecure. See, sometimes we bristle at this notion of worshiping God and the fact that he requires worship. Uh, he doesn't require worship because he needs it. He's not the most insecure guy in the universe. In fact, he's not insecure at all. Worship is required because we need it. We need it. In our humanity, we need to declare the goodness of God in the congregation. He receives it, but we need to give it. And we need to give it for a couple reasons. Uh, the first reason we need to give it is because to worship God, to declare the goodness of God, and to declare our love for God means that we're seeing life clearly. No, it doesn't mean that we're seeing all of life clearly, but it does mean, at least in the grandest sense, that we're recognizing that God is great, that He is good, that He is above all, that He's better, He's supremely awesome, and that He's weaving goodness and mercy into our lives. This is really important because sometimes it's hard to see things clearly. How many of you ever have moments in your life where you don't see anything clearly? Where it seems like, I don't know what the next thing to do is. I'm really confused. Uh, if you haven't experienced that, like, the good news is you will. And if you're not experiencing that now, the good news is you will later. Uh, we all go through seasons of seeing things clearly and then seeing things not clearly. The, the one foundational element of worship is the worshiper always, 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 no matter how confused they are in a million areas of their life, a worshiper always sees something clearly. Something clearly. It's good news. Christians can always be, in, always be certain of the most important aspects of life. And this, this reality, this reality that there is a God, that, that He is weaving goodness and mercy into our life, that He is supremely good, this reality is the little red dot on the map that says, you are here. You ever go to the mall and you see the, the big mall directory? Like, there's all these shops everywhere and everything. Uh, what's the most important thing when you walk up to the mall directory? The, the most important thing is the, 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 the red dot that says you are here. If you don't know where you are, the map is useless. See, here's the, here's the thing. Knowing that the God is good and being able to respond to Him, it's the little red dot on the map. Without it, life doesn't make sense. Without it, you can have a ton of facts and correct answers but they make no sense because they lack the proper context. See, worship gives everyone the proper context for the rest of their lives. Worshipers are always starting from a sure foundation. So maybe you understand some things about life. Maybe you've got some things clear. Maybe you have a lot of things that are not clear. But if you're a worshiper, if you're someone who, in the congregation at least, is beginning to declare the goodness and your love for God, you have at least the context for every answer that will follow. If you don't have that, you can have lots and lots of answers and it'll just be a big giant map with locations that make no sense because you don't know really where you're at. And if we're honest, even though that's a really good reason to be a worshiper, if we're really honest, it can sometimes be hard to be a participant. Whereas God is not insecure, oftentimes you and I are profoundly insecure. Often the most difficult aspect of declaring the goodness of God is our own insecurity. I found for me the number one roadblock to being a to being a worshiper in the congregation is my own insecurity. This is one of the reasons why we need worship so much. Is it begins to remedy 
our insecurities. What are some of the insecurities we have? Well, sometimes we feel insecure about our Christian performance. Sometimes we show up on Sunday and it's like the band is singing some song and we're like, I love you, God. You know, everybody in the room singing, I love you, God. And, and we're thinking, I've been a terrible Christian this week and I would like to sing I love you, but I'm pretty sure he doesn't want to hear from me. Right? I mean, if we're being honest, like if you've not had that season, you're lying. There's that thing that says that our Christian performance is what really, really matters. And so it breeds in us a kind of insecurity. Sometimes we just feel, we feel unworthy. We come in the building, we just feel unworthy. Sometimes we're just concerned that maybe we're just singing to the ceiling. You ever been here and thought, you know what, what are we doing? We're just like, there's a rock band, it's 9 o'clock on a Sunday morning, and we're singing loud love songs to Jesus. I, this makes no sense. It's like, it's like we're in this really weird subcultural bubble here. <laughs> and then we were just like, oh, I'm just checking out. And then, really basically, sometimes we're just worried that that someone else in the room is going to think we're weird. Like, I've got something in my heart, and I'd like to tell it to Jesus in a maybe a more demonstrative way, but I'm really worried about what the person next to me or in front of me or behind me is going to think about me. It's funny to me that we never really leave middle school. And this is one of the things I feel like the Lord is asking us to do, especially when it comes to loving Him. We've got to get over ourselves and leave middle school. Who cares what anybody else in the room thinks? If I've seen something in, of God that's good or beautiful, it has to be declared with passion. We're a little embarrassed to sing love songs out loud to a God who sometimes seems absent. It can make us feel insecure. The reason it can make us feel insecure is because this kind of worship, this stuff that we were just doing here a minute ago, it requires transparency and it, repi- it requires vulnerability. And the trouble with transparency and vulnerability is that we're being trained right now from a very early age to be wary about being our true selves. For instance, one of the things I've noticed the last probably three years, and it's actually getting worse. One of the things I've noticed that in regular life, it's quite common for people to be more honest in a text message or a Facebook message than they ever would be face-to-face both positive and negative. Now, this is not a message about the dangers of technology. (laughs) My family has four iPhones, an iPad, three or four Mac computers. Like, we're in. (laughs) We've bought our ticket over and over again. But one of the things I've noticed is that technology is providing us enough space for people to feel comfortable saying what they really want to say, really transparent and really vulnerable things. I suppose that it's better to say it over a text message than not at all, but the fact remains that we're being slowly and quietly trained to become socially and emotionally numb, and the consequences is that you and I become something less than fully alive human beings. For instance... Let me just put this back into 
our Sunday morning conversation. I'm convinced that the reason that some of us have a really hard time uh, declaring uh, the goodness and the greatness of God on a Sunday morning is because it's so immediate, it's so personal, and you can't get away from it. I'm convinced that some of us in the room would like to text God, I love you, rather than sing it where everyone else can hear it and where he can hear it. Which is the reason all the more that worship is the antidote for the modern spirit of the age. We're being trained. And when, when, we, when, we, when, we, when we withhold that kind of vulnerability to the Lord and to one another in the room, we become something less than human. And you might be thinking, well, less than human, what do you mean? Well, here's what I mean. The ability to express, the ability to express is a gift from the Almighty. Few animals in all the world have even elementary abilities to articulate their thoughts and feelings, let alone the ability to become aware of an invisible present God who created the cosmos. You and I have faculties that no other creature in the entire cosmos, so far as we know, have when it comes to being able to express our thoughts and feelings and vulnerability and transparency. Uh, other, other animals are, can express some things. Dolphins maybe talk to each other. Chimpanzees use a few tools. But at the end of the day, we are the crown jewel of creation. And one of the most unique aspects of humanity is that God has given us the ability to internalize and then reflect in a response. And to not do that is to make ourselves something less than human. It's to make ourselves beastly. And I'm here to say that a church that doesn't know how to rise up and declare the goodness of God is slowly falling out of humanity and slowly walking back into the woods. We're devolving. So the ability and the bravery to become vulnerable with one another and with God is a gift bestowed upon humanity. And to embrace it is to be fully alive. Some of us feel like we have dead hearts. The, the first step to getting out of a dead heart is to declare the goodness and greatness of God. See, I want us, as a church, I want us to resist the temptation to cap our expression to one another, and I also want us to resist the temptation to cap our expression to God. Nothing could be more disastrous. Nothing could be more harmful and nothing will slow us from overcoming our own securities, insecurities more. Furthermore, sometimes life is just really hard. This is another reason why worship is sometimes difficult. Beyond our insecurities, beyond the fact that technology is slowly forming us into something less than human, sometimes life is really hard. Uh, like, for instance, sometimes we lose our job or we get too many kids, or <laughs> I mean the truth is, you never have too many kids, but there may be four or five years where you feel like it. Get four and come call me. <laughs> well, come sit at my table. Sometimes life gets really hard. You might lose a job, you might get too many kids, you might lose a family member. You might get sick. In all of it, we wonder if God is there, if he even really cares. But one of the things that worshipers know, and one of the things that worshipers come to know, is that God is bigger and he will eventually untangle any mess. And it gives us the opportunity to place all of our security in God, because he really is working it out.
Sometimes, sometimes life is hard, like really, really hard. Sometimes uh, some of us might have a marriage that dissolves or a kid that goes wild. or Maybe your finances dry up. And, and the strain of those kinds of experiences, they leave a callus on our spirit. And it's just like hands that hold a shovel for a day or two. If you use a shovel for a day or two, a callus forms in the places that we've been used. And what ends up happening is a protective barrier begins to emerge. And the harder the callus, the less the feeling. And it it becomes really easy to be cynical. Every time we get disappointed, every time we get disappointed in life, a callus grows on our heart and on our spirit. And it becomes harder to feel. And the harder it becomes to feel, the more numb we become. And the more numb we become, the less human we relate to one another and the less human we become to God as well. It's a really big deal. This is why disappointments have to be dealt with in the light of Jesus. He's the salve. It's the only thing that can loosen things back up. Worship is the salve. It softens and it tenderizes. This is a huge opportunity for us. And when that happens, uh, after a while, we, we come into this brand new spot in God. And the new spot we come to is desire. Now, we started this little talk by mentioning that God doesn't need worship. He's not insecure, but we need worship. But the truth is, a needs-based response was never what the Lord had intended. So I want to say two things to you here. Uh, God doesn't need worship. You and I, and we need to worship. But in the biggest, most grandest sense possible the Lord was never looking for a needs based response from you and I he was looking for desire so you and I were created for desire in reality you and I were created by desire and meant to reflect desire back to God the whole cosmos is an expression of the desire of God God didn't need any of it this is really huge okay God didn't need any of it He didn't need the planets. He didn't need the stars. He didn't need the seas. He didn't need the forests. He didn't need the animals. And let me tell you something else. He didn't even need people. And you know what? He still doesn't need people. And what this means means is a couple things. Number one, God wasn't lonely. God has never been lonely. Even when it was just Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, He wasn't lonely. Uh, It also means that God wasn't bored. He has never been bored. Not one single act of creation has come from boredom. And it also means that he wasn't scared of getting older and having no one. And it also means that he wasn't scheming a way to get rich and not go under. And what this means was that in his being he had some dreams and all of his dreams were born by desire. And by the way, all dreams are born by desire. And what that means is that desire is the foundational principle of the whole cosmos. Not chance. Not needs, but desire. There's this new place in worship that the Lord wants to bring us to, and it's called desire. It is not needs-based. It is love-based. The whole cosmos was born out of the desire of God. He didn't need any of it. He wanted it all. He doesn't, you don't need the sun. He doesn't need the sun. He wanted the sun. 
He didn't need the seas. He wanted the seas. And he didn't need sharks. He wanted them, even the hammerheads. And he didn't need you. He wanted you. That's profoundly different. All of that means is, all of that means that the cosmos was born by desire. And so worship is the consummation of desire. And it's the context for even greater desire. And this is such a big deal because we've all been given expression to all sorts of desires, some of them good and some of them terrible. Like right now in this room, uh, everybody in the past week has given expression to all kinds of desires. That's what we do. That's what human beings do. We've got desires and we, just, we give expression to them. We, we look for ways to bring things to life. Uh, some of us in the room are chained to debt because of our desires. And some of us have emotional scars because of our desires. Some of us have really awesome houses because of our desires. Like you dreamed about it and you made it. Uh, some of us have kids because of our desires. Not only that, but temptation is a manifestation of desire. How many of you all experience temptation rather regularly? Yeah, it's, it's one of the most common themes of the human life is cycles of temptation. And everybody's got their own thing. Everybody's got their own, their own sugar. There's some sugar. Everybody's got some sugar. And you, just, you get a taste for it. And one of the things that I've noticed is that temptation is so ubiquitous. The fact that so much of life hinges on how we manage our temptation, it's showing us the degree to which desire was sewn into the fabric of the universe, but you cannot manage desire like a 401k or a Wall Street hedge fund. They cannot be managed. You cannot. Some of us are knocking ourselves out trying to manage our temptations and our desires. And what I'm here to tell you is you cannot manage desires. You can only eliminate them with a new one. Here's the deal. If you've, got, if you've got some sugar in your life that's rotting your teeth, you've got to get some different sugar. You can't just get rid of that one. Nature abhors a vacuum. You can't just get rid of it. It has to be replaced. And you can't even get rid of it first. You have to go grab the other thing. And this is actually really good news. Some of us in the room start, need to start getting happy, like even right now, because some of your desires are rotting all of your teeth out. And it can actually be replaced. Some of us feel completely defeated by the desires we have. Some of us are getting drunk four times a week, and we don't want to, but we kind of want to. Some of us are looking at a lot of pornography, and we don't want to, but we kind of want to. And some of us uh, have a lot of angry speech that comes out, and we don't want to, but we kind of want to. And some of us maybe uh, occasionally hit somebody, and we don't want to, but we sort of want to. And some of us maybe... uh, Slide the credit card a lot, and we don't want to, but we kind of want to. And, and we, we hate it, and we were hoping for something new, and maybe we went to counseling, and maybe that worked, or maybe it didn't. But the good news is that it's actually possible to get some new desires, and here's the reason why. The reason why is because human beings are limited beings. You and I have a limited heart capacity, we have limited time, we have limited intellect, and we have limited resources. If you introduce the right desires, the toxic ones are choked out. You simply won't have time or capacity for them. Now, what is the right desire? Well, you have to start with God. If you start with anything else, you will double back into sugar that rots your teeth out. You have to start with God. You have to start with God. This thing we do on Sunday morning is not benign. It could be life and death. See, we cannot shrink back in our love for God. We must press in. We cannot stand and speculate on Sunday morning. Otherwise, we will be, com- we will be captivated by a lesser light. Some people, some people in life are captivated by the moon and won't look at the sun. <clears throat> I 
We cannot let our insecurities have the say. Lest we become beasts. Unless we become emotional lepers. What's an emotional leper? Here's what an emotional leper is. It's someone who has become so numb, they do not know that they've damaged themselves until it's too late. This is one of the most common things that I encounter as a pastor, especially in men. Men are dying of emotional leprosy. Especially men. Women too, but especially, especially men. What is emotional leprosy? It is the inability or the unwillingness to be vulnerable and transparent. And it is the, it is the proclivity towards cynicism and the callousness that comes from disappointment. And it creates a numbness. You just don't feel anything. You understand that leprosy is not a, a disease that's on the skin. Leprosy is numbness and it's lack of feeling. And what happens to lepers is, is they damage themselves, they don't know it, and they damage themselves and they don't know it, and they damage themselves and they don't know it, and they damage themselves and their hands fall off. And there's emotional leprosy, like it's just rampant, rampant. Where is the emotional leprosy coming from? The emotional leprosy is coming from letting our insecurities have the say. The emotional leprosy comes from the little voice in the back of our heads that says, don't say anything. Just shut up and be quiet. Keep your head down. Don't tell anybody who you really are or what you really think. Don't get too excited about Jesus or, or even your best friend or anything. I've said all of that this morning um, because... Seriously, just pastorally here at the vineyard, I'm, I'm really afraid that we're becoming a little too domesticated. I'm concerned that at the vineyard we've become too respectable. That's actually a problem. I'm concerned that at the vineyard we've become a little too refined. And I'm really afraid that we may settle for texting our love use to God and to our brothers rather than saying them or heaven forbid shouting them. I'm afraid that we're becoming risk averse. And by the way, I'm not mad. Like I'm not mad. I'm just shooting the warning shots. Like and right now it's all good, but in three years it might not be good. I'm really afraid that we could become flavorless. I'm afraid that in five years we could be vanilla. God is not vanilla. God has a Baskin Robbins in heaven. It does not have vanilla. It's the one flavor that's unavailable. And the antidote, really quickly, the antidote, the antidote, the antidote, the antidote is desire. The antidote is desire. And you know where desire comes from? Here's where desire comes from. 
probably 90% of desire comes from seeing. Hmm. Probably 90% of desire comes from seeing. Think about the stuff you want. Let's just take it out of spiritual talk for a minute. Let's just get right down to things I want. Think about all the stuff you want. How did you know that you wanted it? You saw it. Desire is really easy. Like, you see it. Good and bad. The stuff that we really want, we almost always comes by first seeing it. And so what you and I need is, we need a life that's given to seeing the Lord. You and I need a lifestyle that's given to seeing the beauty of Jesus. Look at verse 2 and 3 again. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart and the company of the upright and the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. You can't have verse 1 without verse 2 and 3. Desire won't come unless you see it. You will not love Jesus from a place of desire, from a place of affection until you see his beauty. And in order to see the beautiful, the beautiful aspects of who God is, it requires a contemplative life because oftentimes God is hiding in plain sight. So this is actually an invitation for this whole room to become contemplatives of a, of a, of a certain kind. We, we need to live life where we're doing our jobs, where we're with our families, where we're going to soccer games, where we're, where we're you know, even in our hobbies, but we need to do them in, in a manner uh, where we do not lose contact with the reality that God is present in that moment, in every single moment, and that he's doing something beautiful in every single place Oftentimes in the places that we're most afraid to go to and the things that we think are most ugly and hurtful and dirty and shameful, he's even there and we need to look for his beauty. If you find his beauty, if you can see him there, it will spark wonder in your heart and affection. This is why we need a contemplative life. If there's anything I could say to the church this morning, it's this. Do not settle for the cynical reading. Do not settle for the cynical reading of life. And do not settle for the been there, done that version. That is a soul destroyer. Cynicism is a soul destroying, callous forming, numbing, emotional leprosy, can't say it, insecurity building, terrible, never say what I really think, never get vulnerable to a person or to God, less than human, beastly thing. It will kill you. We need to spark wonder. We need to be a little less domesticated. We need a little bit more of David in his underwear. <laughs> like, really, we do. Like, we, we really, really do. Lots of people would be like, you know, I'm not too sure about that. It's really, really what we need. Some of us are most concerned about having a respectable life. Oh, my gosh, a respectable life is the worst disease that could ever fall upon a person. The risk-averse life, it's a disease. The quiet life is a disease. Not quiet in the sense of peace, but quiet in the sense of taking steps back. 
Some of us are thinking, well, I'm an introvert. I'm an internal processor. So am I. And even introverted internal processors need to declare the goodness of God and need to feel their bodies resonate with that declaration. It's formational. Amen? Amen. Amen. You guys understand I'm not angry, right? But I am serious. I'm firing the warning shot here. This is a thing. We're cool now. We might not be cool in five years. This is really important. We need to see the beauty of the Lord. Amen. Why don't you guys stand up this morning? I want to pray for you. <clears throat> Why don't we just put our hands out? Let's do, let's do old school vineyard. This is old school vineyard. If you're cool with this, this is, this is classic 1983 vineyard right here. Only I'm not John Wimber. Jesus, help me. Lord, would you open up our eyes so we can see your beauty? And Father, would you deliver us from emotional leprosy, especially when it comes to declaring your goodness? Father, we ask that you would deliver us from the spirit of the age that would rather text and I love you than say and I love you. Father, I ask that you would, that you would deliver us from a domesticated vineyard. God, I ask that the wild strain would be given full expression. God, I ask that the, that the, that the risk-taking wild strain that started this church would be given full expression in life. God, I ask that, that, that we would be a people of, of, of great passion and desire. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, who is truly wonderful. Amen. Amen. Hey, go in peace. Give somebody a high five and a hug. Bless you guys.